It's been some powerful music this morning. We praise the Lord for that. Now, I just want to say, uh, Sandy and I are counting it a real privilege to be a part of Lakes Free Fellowship and to uh, have the opportunity to uh, be available to serve with Pastor Jason and Justin and the entire staff. It uh, has been nothing short of amazing for me. How should you take your Bibles in hand if you want to turn to Luke chapter 18? We've been in this gospel since last September. And I don't know if you remember or not, but in chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Jesus said that he was going to go to Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 19, he finally arrives. When Pastor Rick uh, established this uh, preaching uh, schedule for the year, he intended to be in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. In the text, not personally. (laughs) But when he retired and Pastor Jason uh, became the senior pastor, he... uh, decided to take three weeks out and to share with us the vision that he uh, sees for the ministry of Lakes Free for the future. So we're not going to be in Palm Sunday or in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, according to the text. We'll be celebrating that three weeks later. But that's okay. You know, we, Easter is a, a joyous celebration time. And uh, we'll focus upon Easter and Holy Week uh, whenever. We think of uh, Palm Sunday uh, as uh, the beginning of Holy Week. But what transpires between chapter 9, when he said he was going to Jerusalem, and chapter 19, when he actually arrives, he... uh, is teaching his disciples. And he knows that his crucifixion and death, burial, and resurrection uh, lay ahead for him in Jerusalem. And so he's giving them some last words. And you know that last words are very important. So we should listen carefully to these last words of Jesus as he's walking and talking and teaching. Now, previous to our text today, Jesus had been talking about humility and gratitude and faithfulness, as Jason uh, spoke on last Sunday. But here in chapter 18, you get something else. We see, particularly in verse 18, that there is a young ruler who comes and he asks the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We are about to answer a very important question. This text is absolutely powerful. So listen to it. And after I read the text, I'll come back and try to break it down for you. So let's turn to Luke chapter 18, and you can follow along as I read. Beginning with verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, 
for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. A young ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, Well, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Well, then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Well, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, namely eternal life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit being here to open up the truth of your word for us today. Will you break the bread of life for us now? We pray this in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, prior to this text, Jesus had been speaking about faith and gratitude and humility and forgiveness and other topics But now Jesus is turning his attention to another topic, and it's the topic regarding the eternal life and how one can inherit it. I almost made a critical mistake by starting this message about eternal life from the perspective of the rich young ruler. But Jesus begins talking about eternal life in his interaction with the children. And that's what we can't miss. So let me call your attention to this very important part of this passage. And what's happening here is that they were bringing children, babies, to Jesus to bless them. And the disciples were thinking, oh, these kids are a bother. They're getting in Jesus' way. Keep them away from them. And Jesus said, no, let them come because... They are an example of how one is to receive the kingdom of God. Now, you know about children, right? You know, from the very first moment they take their first breath, they are totally dependent upon a parent or someone else. 
And the only way the children can let you know what they knew, uh, what they need, is by. <laughs> And they do that in very inopportune times, <laughs> don't they? Day or night. And so Jesus says, don't hinder these children from coming because they give us the clue as to how one is to receive eternal life. But now watch this. Right after that, here comes this rich young ruler. And he asks the question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now here we have this rich young ruler who is self-reliant. He is morally upright. He is a man who has all personal accomplishments. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. So he's someone pretty high up. And he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, don't miss this. This man was from a good background. He didn't have any serious problems to overcome. He had no drugs, no alcohol, no history of trouble with the law. From his youth, he had tried to keep the Ten Commandments, and he had done pretty, pretty well. He was a fine young man. I think a man that Lake Free would, would lift up as an example. It shouldn't take much to lead this man to Christ. But Jesus seemed to take a wrong approach. Anyone with a little bit of training knows that when a person asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The right answer is... The right answer is... Faith, and it's free, right? By grace you have been saved, and it's through faith, not as a result of works. So, Jesus, he questions him. You know, when... When one does evangelism outreach, we tell a person, just believe in Jesus and receive God's free gift, and then we can lead him to prayer to receive Christ and give him an assurance of salvation and rejoice that another name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. The one thing that you would never do as in an evangelistic outreach is to tell that person to keep the Ten Commandments. Because you and I know fully well that obeying the commandments will not get anybody into heaven. And yet, that's precisely what Jesus did. When the guy replies that he has done that, then Jesus brings up the subject of money, of all things. And he tells him, go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor and then come, and you will have treasure in heaven. There's another possibility, of course. <clears throat> it seems us, to us that Jesus really blew a choice opportunity, and that he didn't share the gospel clearly with this young man. 
And if it had been anyone other than Jesus, I think we would all say, this guy really blew it. But Jesus has something totally other to tell us about the gospel message and how to share it. And in particular, he teaches us how to share the gospel with good people. Those who believe in God, who live decent lives, that's what he was trying to teach. Now, there are three lessons that I want us to draw from this text this morning. The first is, even good people need salvation. Now, this man believed God, and he was zealous for spiritual things. He was sincere. He was a moral young man, trying to do the very best that he could to please God. But he was lacking eternal life. He was good, but he was lost. I encounter people like this all the time, decent, moral people. Often they've been raised in the church. Their parents have taught them right from wrong. They hold responsible jobs. They pay taxes. They obey the law. They are faithful to their marriages. They attend church. And they even give to church. They give their time and service to service clubs. They spend wholesome time in in youth activities like scouts and and, uh, coaching sports teams. They're good people, the kind that you would want for your neighbors. But even though they are good, they may not have eternal life. They lack treasure in heaven, as Jesus refers to in verse 22. He says, one thing yet you lack, and that is go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. They have not entered the kingdom of God, like he says in verses 24 and 5. He says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now you go home and just pick up a darning needle, the biggest one you can find, and try to stick a camel through that. And you'll get the the message of what Jesus was talking about. All of these terms in the text point to the same thing, namely that being right related to God in the present will enable us to spend eternity with him in heaven after death. Like Kevin. A victory. Because of his faith in Jesus. So as this story makes evident, it is not enough to be a very good person. Even good people need salvation because in and of themselves they are not good enough. And so it raises an important question. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? When I say a good person, I am referring notably to those whom others label as good, but also to those who call themselves good. 
Most people flatter themselves by take, thinking that they are on the upward side of the goodness curve. And Satan has blinded us to the enormity of our sin in God's sight. And we all compare ourselves with those who are worse sinners than we, and not with those who are better than we. I was sitting in the dentist's office one day, and I picked up the Reader's Digest, and, and in that was a, a story of a portly fellow who was in the convenience store, and, and he put his six-pack of beer and his bottle of wine and his box of cigars and an adult magazine on the counter. And as the checker was totaling it up, all of a sudden he said, oh yeah, and by the way, I, I forgot... Uh, this candy bar, this is my one vice. <laughs> well, I didn't think it would be appropriate to bring the other items to display in our worship this morning. But you see how, if you are inclined to think of yourself as basically a good person, this message is for you. And the first thing that it shows you is that you need the salvation that the Bible tells us about, because we are not good enough in and of ourselves. Romans 3.10 says, there's no one that does good, no, not one. Well, that includes all of us, doesn't it? And even the best people need salvation. So the question is, how are good people saved? Well, secondly, God, good people are saved by abandoning trust in their own goodness because salvation by human goodness is impossible. Jesus shocked the disciples, and we see that particularly in Mark's gospel, which talks about the same Incident. He says, The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And in verse 26, they were even more astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? And the disciples and most Jews thought that, you know, wealth is a sign of God's blessing. But Jesus says that it is a definite spiritual hindrance or a danger. And that's why he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a man, a rich man, to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, salvation for a rich man is not just difficult, it is impossible. And when the disciples asked them who can be saved, Jesus confirmed what they were thinking, that the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. No one can be good enough to be saved. And the text, I think, brings out three main reasons why salvation by human goodness is impossible. Number one. Salvation by human goodness is impossible because human goodness can never compare 
with God's goodness. And so when the young ruler asked Jesus or addressed Jesus as good teacher, that was an unusual way to address a Jewish teacher, and it really bordered on flattery. And Jesus challenges him, and he says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that's God. I think a lot of cultists and critics jump on this statement to say that Jesus here was denying his deity. But they missed the point. If Jesus were not God in human flesh, to tell this man to go and sell everything that he has and give it to the poor would be on the par of a Jim Jones type of leader. But Jesus' point was not to make a statement about himself but rather to challenge this young man's superficial use of the word good. He was using good like we use the word love. We can say, I love pizza, I love my dog, and in the same breath say, I love my wife, and then say, I love Jesus. Um, In so doing, we cheapen the meaning of the word love, especially when we apply it to Jesus. And that's why Jesus takes this young ruler to task. The man would have agreed that God is good. But if you ask, he would also say that he himself is good. He's kept the commandments. He wasn't a sinner like the prostitutes and the publicans. He was a good man, seeking to learn from another good man how he could have in uh, how he could inherit eternal life. And I think Jesus was inferring to the young man that he ought not to call Jesus good unless he's prepared to affirm that Jesus is God. The young man's flippant use of the word good showed that he did not grasp the absolute goodness of God. That is necessary to be in his presence in heaven for all eternity. Salvation by human goodness is impossible because it can never compare to God's goodness. A second reason that salvation by human goodness is impossible is because human goodness is always falling short of God's holy law. Now the difference between point A and point B is that in point A, the focus is upon God's nature as holy, and in point B, the focus is on God's law as the expression of his holiness. And the young man asks, what can he do to gain eternal life? And Jesus responds, keep the Ten Commandments. And Jesus mentions the second table, which contains commandments that focus on our duty to our fellow man. Because these commands are somewhat outward and observable, we can see more if we, if we are relating to one another and how we relate to one another. We can see that. But if a person could keep all of God's commandments for all of life, not only outwardly, but on the fat level as well, then he would inherit eternal life. And that's what Leviticus 18.5 says. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. 
See, it's conditional. So the man claims to have done all these things from his youth, and Jesus easily could have challenged him on that answer, but he lets that answer go by, and he presses on to his chief problem when he says, one thing you lack, go sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Now, why did Jesus lay that requirement upon this man? If it were a universal requirement for salvation, I think Jesus would have put the same requirement upon Zacchaeus, but he didn't. I believe that Jesus was using the law as a tutor to convict the man of sin, just like Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The man claimed to keep all of these commandments, but Jesus is saying, in effect, you don't keep the first half of the commandments to love God with all your heart because your money is your God. You are an idolater. And you don't keep the second half to love your neighbor as yourself because you're unwilling to give generously to the poor. So in our attempts to share the gospel, we often are too quick to share the good news before people sense the awful weight of the bad news. When we are talking with a person who trusts in his own goodness to get him to heaven, that's when we need to emphasize the holy law of God, which this person has violated, even though he is blind to a fact. The Bible says that to keep the whole law but to violate in one point is to be guilty of it all. That's what James 2.10 tells us. Now you can live a perfect life, but if you sin just once, you are disqualified from heaven because God will not allow any unpardoned sinner into heaven. He must punish all sin in order to be just. Now, if you were driving too fast and you got a ticket, like I did, I could tell the judge, well, I've never murdered anyone. You know, I may have been going too fast, but I didn't murder anyone. But the judge wouldn't let me off. Or I could say, well, I've never robbed the bank. I've always paid my tax. I even go to church. That wouldn't matter either. I broke the law, and the judge imposes the penalty. Or suppose you go to a furniture store, and you want to buy a mirror. And the clerk shows you a mirror, but it's got a, just a little crack in the corner. And you say, sorry, I don't want to. Oh, he says, the rest of the mirror is okay. One little crack is a broken mirror. By the same token, one sin a sinner makes. And he's a lawbreaker. And we've all sinned, not just once, but repeatedly. And people who think that they're good enough to qualify for heaven need to hold their behavior, including their thoughts, up to the standard of God's holy law. That's the mirror. The law simply shows us who we are in reality. 
and how far short we fall from what God has put as the standard. We need to feel, just like Spurgeon put it when when he said, we need to feel the rope around our neck that we may stand guilty and condemned before God. And one reason that we see so many superficial professions of faith in our day is that we do not use the law as Jesus did in order to convict people of how far short they fall and why they need to be saved. So salvation by human goodness is impossible because it can never compare with God's goodness and it always falls short of God's holy law. But thirdly, salvation by human goodness is impossible because human goodness deceives us about our heart condition. This man was sincere in thinking that he had kept the commandments, but he was sincerely wrong. He was deceiving himself because he was not looking at the things at the heart level as God sees us. You can be sincerely, uh, you can believe that, uh, uh, that you are well physically, but if you have some internal disease that's killing you, your sincerity won't matter. You must deal with your true condition or you will die. Sincerity isn't enough. We must believe God's diagnosis about the wickedness that he sees within us. Now the Bible repeatedly warns us about the danger of money. In the parable of the sower, for example, in Luke chapter 8, the thorns that choked out the word represent the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life. And in the parable of the rich fool, in chapter 12, Jesus described that a man had stored up plenty of goods, but in the process he neglected his own soul. And so uh, Paul warns in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So money is kind of like a loaded gun. It can be useful if it is used carefully. But at all times it is dangerous and that you must treat it with caution. And like guns... Money can only be handled by sinners. It can lull us into thinking that all is well because we're living comfortably. We forget that eternity is just a heartbeat away. And life can change instantaneously as the Lovedell family experienced. So if you protest that money is no problem for you, I would say you do not see your heart as God sees it. And even though one may be generous with the money that one receives, it may deceive deceive ourselves into thinking that because we give away so much, that then God will somehow overlook our sin. 
But no one can get into heaven by his own goodness. Good people must abandon trusting in their own goodness if they want to get right with God. Salvation by human goodness, impossible. So thirdly, God, good people are saved by turning from their sin and trusting in God alone to save them. This man lacked one thing, but in lacking that one thing, he lacked really everything. And what was this one thing? I've said it over and over. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And he said, what? What in the world are you asking of me to do? Did Jesus mean that he could earn salvation by doing this one thing? If so, this would be the first guy in history of whom that was true. Because the Bible is uniformly clear that salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, lest you should boast. So why did Jesus lay this heady requirement on this man? Well, he did it because this man cannot cling to his idols and genuinely trust Jesus for salvation at one and the same time. Saving faith is inseparable from repentance, which simply means that I turn from my sin. Like Mark 1.15 sums up Jesus' message, repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance simply loosens our grasp on our sin, and faith lays hold of God's deliverance. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. And Jesus was telling this rich young man that he taught elsewhere that if your hand causes you to, to uh, sin or to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If you don't, you will go to hell, he says. In other words, it is sin that condemns us. We must repent of it, or it will drag us down into the pit. You can't cling to your sin with one hand and the cross of Jesus Christ with the other. Just picture a man in an upper story of a burning high-rise apartment building. This has been the home that he has loved. But the building is on fire, and if he wants to save his life, he's got to give up his residence there. And if he clings to things, he's going to die in the smoke and the flames. Repentance is turning from those things to the open window... And faith is jumping out of the window into the safety net that the firemen have placed on the ground for you. Both are necessary to be saved. As Jesus makes it very plain here, no man can save himself. But the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And this means we dare not trust in our repentance to save us. We dare not trust in our trust to save us. We can only trust in God to save us. Salvation is totally God's doing, not any of our doing. We must cast ourselves totally on him, just like the children in the beginning of this text. He says, 
the children need to come because they are examples of how to enter into the kingdom of God. They are totally dependent upon him. And that's the only way for you and me. So the bottom line is, good people are saved by abandoning trust in their own goodness and by turning from their sin and trusting in God alone. Are you there? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word that it is true and it is powerful. And we pray now in the quietness of this sanctuary that your Holy Spirit would lead, would speak to our heart so that some in this place may cry out and say, Father, I thank you for the promise of eternal life that I enjoy because of Jesus and my faith in Christ. And there may be some in this room who may cry out and say, Father, forgive me a sinner. I acknowledge Jesus and my need for Christ. Save me, a sinner. By your grace, save me. And I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.